Hello and welcome to Ladywood, the podcast where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. Uh, I'm Lynn Sternberger. I'm a television writer out in L.A. I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer. My name is Sita Sean, a stand-up comedian and comedy writer. And today we are discussing the fifth episode of the third and final season, A Two-Headed Beast, which was written by David Milch and directed by Dan Minahan. So this is a pairing of the movie creators as well, the OG Milch and uh, Dan Minahan, who is directing the film. So this episode first aired July 9, 2006, and in it, Dan Doherty picks up Captain Turner's gauntlet, gauntlet, and the two do battle in the thoroughfare. Hostetler completes a deal regarding the livery, but a final insult against his honor pushes him over the edge, and Bullock hands Hurst an earful and makes a public arrest as the latter mourns a blow to his operations. I love how they were trying to, like, put the ear pulling into this somehow. (laughs) Doesn't really totally make sense, but I see what you were trying there, Wikipedia author. So I think there's just a ton happening in this episode, but probably the storyline that looms largest is Dan versus the captain. So Al versus Hearst. Yeah, this was um, this was the scene I was talking about a couple episodes ago when I was like, we're building to one of those like most famous dead one deadwood scenes. Oh, I totally recognized it as soon as it happened. I was like, this is what Brandy met. I I can't believe I forgot the eyeball. I was waiting for the eyeball. I was just like, when does it come? I thought it was kind of a fun too because it almost felt like a, a video game, you know, like in Mortal Kombat where you have to choose your fighter. It was like Hearst chooses the captain as his fighter and then Al chooses Dan Doherty. And, but that, that fight was really disgusting and really well done because I, I think Dan foreshadowed it too, that he, um, because Johnny tells Dan that if things go badly, if things take a bad turn to lie down flat and then Johnny would shoot the captain. But Dan, of course, wants to preserve sort of the honors of having a fair fight. Which mm-hmm. then also is uh, I'll, I'll I have a different comment about uh, honorable fighting later on, but then Dan tells Johnny no freaking way you do that and it'll be the end of your life, and then truly true to form the fight actually takes place and it looks like Dan's losing pretty much the entire time until mm. the eyeball. That was good. What I wanted to say was it's funny, Sita, that you brought up the Dan and the Johnny conversation because. I don't think they tend to be the two characters where we get the most insight into, like, I I always think that Al is more likely to have advice or, uh, I don't know, Charlie Utter seems to have, like, a statement about how the way the world works or, like, Jane drunkenly. But in this one, it's Dan. And it was absolutely my favorite quote of the episode when he tells Johnny, going wrong is not the end of fucking things, Johnny. Because I think Mm -hmm. that that's a good life model. I'm going to put it on my vision board. Johnny is very concerned about everyone all through this episode. And he also has a moment where he takes out his frustrations on poor Davey. <laughs> like, without EB there, there's no one for them to yell out but Davey. <laughs> but I think just jumping back, Sita, to what you said about Mortal Kombat. And then there's the moment at the end where Dan looks up at Al and he gives, like, the very slightest of slightest nods, which is the Deadwood equivalent of finish him. amazing I think the way that they shot it was really cool too it was sort of not nor it reminded me a bit of when Bullock took on the Native American Mm. but it was it was a lot of handheld camera work 
kind of gritty. I mean, what a compelling fight to watch. It's an amazing scene from front to back, just like the way that he like greases himself up and goes out there and you just know you're in for something that is going to be not quite like anything you've seen before. And I guess RIP the captain. Oh, yeah, he is for sure uh, donezo. Really he had a come in. Let's be honest. Oh, he's the one who called out Dan. Mm-hmm. I mean, he brought this on himself by doubting that Dan could take him down, basically. Never doubt Doherty. So then after all of this, Dan actually refuses to see the doc, who seems to have pulled himself together and isn't coughing up phlegm for a moment. He's really upset. And when Johnny goes in to talk to him and is like, everyone wants to see you. Do you want a drink? What do you want? Like, almost trying to turn it into a victory party. And Dan's sitting there naked and crying. Yeah, he seems very shaken. I mean, seriously, it's not the first guy he's killed. We've seen him kill a bunch of people. So I guess it's the nature of the confrontation, how it was sort of like hand-to-hand combat that shook something loose in him. Or maybe he has decided he doesn't want to do it anymore. I, I couldn't, I didn't know exactly how to read it. What did you guys think? So Johnny basically goes to Al and um, asks Al why Dan won't come out. And then Al explains it to him that it's really the light going out in the eyes of your opponent that gets to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that same conversation, also, Al also talks about the fact that he and Dan try to avoid any semblance of a fair fight because they just want um, death to be over as soon as possible. So fighting fair actually feels worse for them. That's kind of uh, what my takeaway was. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really just taking a blade to someone's throat, right? Like, without a weapon, there is no sort of barrier between you and death. Hashtag it was too real. Too real. Uh, we should back up two seconds. So this whole fight is predicated upon, okay, they find another dead Cornish organizer stabbed in the thoroughfare. Seth looks into it, and then he withdraws from his agreement with Al to not hold Hurst accountable. Meanwhile, Captain Turner is pissed with Dan Doherty, and all of this comes to a head when Al gives Dan permission to fight the captain. Yeah, Seth comes in to the gem when they're all sort of sitting around talking about what's to be done. They convince him to go off and deal with his own business for a while, continue just sort of ignoring what they're doing for just a minute, even though he is ready to go as far as confronting Hearst. And so then we get this other side storyline where we get to see more of Steve. Isn't that such a blessing? Oh my God. I completely agree, Brandy. Like less Steve is what I want. Yeah. It's like we at the beginning of the episode, they're still preparing to sign the documents that we had to deal with so much in the last episode. And I'm like, just sign it. Do we need to see all of this? Do we need to see them going to the bank? Do we need to see Seth there? All of it. And then we have to go back to the fucking board that they made him write on when he did or did not allegedly fuck the horse. <laughs> I mean, that, all of this feels so unnecessary. And then, of course, it. I hate the way this storyline ends. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Yeah, I think hate's about right. I mean, I think yeah. I kind of get how the powers that be that were making these decisions decided to have it end with a bang. And, and they really did try to push hot Stetler mentally to the edge, but we had to witness the whole thing and it feels horrific. It feels weird because in some respect, 
okay, everybody has their own mental health and clearly he was not in a good place and Steve just knew how to push every single possible button. But also, it's being packaged as entertainment and that part of it feels icky. I would say that I rebuke the storyline. <laughs> <laughs> when Hofstetter left sort of in the middle of Steve having a, like another basic racist Tourette's syndrome or whatever he's yeah. going through. And then there's a gunshot. And I was like, oh, there's no way they could have gone for this storyline. I, I don't know. Like in my in my reading of Hofstetter, he is a temperamental proud old man but not necessarily one that was that could be driven to suicide by someone i mean i'm sure steve is not the first racist Hofstetter has oh. encountered in his life right you know <laughs> and it's i guess steve is obstinate and terrible and really frustrating but i guess the only sort of head headway i could make towards motivation was that Hofstetter saw no end to Steve, like that he would have to somehow deal with Steve forever. But he didn't uh, have to. He literally had the money. Uh, so so I guess it's like, it is pitched as just a mental thing. Mm-hmm. Like, a, I can't take it anymore. Yes, and but I would combine those two things because I feel like what Sita's saying, I took as like, there's a moment where Hosteller is like, this is what my whole life is going to be. Because if it's not Steve... There's a hundred thousand Steves out yeah. there, you know, like he's like a symbol of all the bullshit he's ever had to deal with. Yeah. And I did remember that back when they first ran away from camp, Fields and Hosteller had a conversation at their campfire where Hosteller was very adamant that he would kill himself before he would let himself be lynched. Mm. So I, it's not that it's the first time he's ever thought of that. I mean, I, and I'm not saying any of this to defend the way that the scene goes down or this choice. No, maybe it's but a I seed think, that they planted. Yeah, I do think the seed was planted. I still think it's just, and and it goes to the problem we had with the Hot Stetler character the entire time, which is that we're not granted a lot of access to him. We don't know 100% what makes him tick. And so... Yeah, the outline that you've provided, Sita, is pretty much what I took away as well. And so a suicide does seem like a leap because there was nobody for him to say, like, oh, I'm really struggling with this and that. And it makes it makes me want to opt out of life. We just mm-hmm. have to it. I feel like we get more Aunt Lou characterization in like two episodes than we've gotten with Hofstetter in like four or five. Like uh, Aunt Lou at least has had the chance to play like two different sides of her personality. We see who she is when she's with Hearst and we see who she is when she uh, is with uh, the Chinese and we see who she is when she's like Mm. out of her, um, you know, just out of the sphere of white people. You don't even really see that with Hofstetter and um, Fields because Hofstetter is always bent on like preserving his own sort of like status. It's not status, but it's uh, like with General Fields, who's kind of a flouter of co- social conventions. Hofstetter is sort of like the straight man. Oh, he wants to so be upstanding. Think, yeah, he, he wants to be upstanding. So we don't even see like the part of Hofstetter where he's just being very honest about like how he feels, you know. And, and the other people that we've seen commit suicide on the show or flirt with suicide. We completely, I think we had a very clear understanding of what was motivating that. With Walcott, it was fear of reprisal, self-loathing. With Joni, it was fear of the future, self-loathing. Or with um, Trixie, it was 
the feeling of being trapped. Yeah, the inability of imagining a good future for herself. Like, we, we just have much clearer understandings. Maybe the missing piece is that I don't think Hosteller is self-loathing at all. I think he's angry at the outside world. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the self-loathing piece is totally missing, and that's maybe why I'm having difficulty connecting to the suicide as, like, oh, this is, a, like, a mechanic of his character versus, like, yeah. oh, this feels like a, like, plotty thing that happened in this act. Ugh. Well, that's what we've seen of him, unfortunately. He's never going to make it to Oregon, which is also full of fucking racists, so... <laughs> First of all, nobody had to die, number one. That choice could have been made to just not have it. But alternately, it would have been very interesting to see him shoot Steve and the fallout of that. Mm, maybe. Maybe somebody else will shoot Steve. He definitely deserves to be shot. I find the general Fields a little bit more of a ridiculous character, maybe because he's always talking with drunk Jane. But I really liked Hustetler. He's kind of got that backbone that Seth has that was appealing and I, I miss him. And I think he was done dirty. Agreed. Speaking of self-loathing, Alma is on the dope again. She's trimming a plant. She is enjoying the fuck out of trimming that plant. <laughs> I did not miss high Alma. No. Yeah. It's frustrating to see this step back. Thanks Leon. Jesus Christ. Fuck you, Leon. This was going so well. Trixie obviously knows what's up, like, from the jump. And then later, of course, we see her actually dosing herself with laudanum. She gives a ridiculous interview to Merrick. Oh, yeah. And then she comes on to Ellsworth. This is the arc of the the, the episode. <laughs> this is the arc. It, and in light of our previous musings about whether the two of them would ever phone, this is the worst possible way to go about it, Alma. It's so heartbreaking, like, as he slowly tries to get into this, like, seduction that she has going, and then he realizes that she's drugged up. The, there's, like, one moment where that passes across his face, and I'm just like, Jim Beaver, that's, like, an incredible piece of acting right there, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it says all that needs to be said, that it's just like, oh, my wife has to drug herself in order to come to me. Like, I'll see myself out. If it were a contemporary couple and not two people thrown together by circumstance I, I would hope that the husband would be like let me help you get off the drugs let's get through this but I feel like Ellsworth still feels like a stranger in his own home it kind of feels like El Ellsworth is taking some, some of the blame for Alma being on laudanum kind of blames himself right that he's that he feels like she's lowered herself to taking drugs just to be with him to make this like marriage work in some way. I mean, did Ellsworth know anything about her previous addiction? Probably not, right? Because she and Trixie pretty much swept it under the rug. I thought he did. I feel like Trixie had had told him about it, um, but I don't know that he really witnessed it rather than just heard it from her. If they had had like old timey Narcotics Anonymous, I feel like a lot of this could have been addressed in a healthy manner. However, they are without those resources. It's literally Trixie just being like, you high girl and Ellsworth leaving. Yeah, it's hitting her hard. We see her um, little secret cubby hole where she sleeps now. I don't know what else to call it. It feels like she's, you know, like secreted away in the attic, kind of like, I don't know, Anne. 
god. Hidden behind a bookcase <laughs> or something. She's very Anne Frank in this yeah. situation. Yeah. <laughs> Lord. But uh, she gets, like, called to Saul's bedside, and she is like, fuck off, first of all. And then when she does go through the secret passage to visit him, she tells him that uh, Alma's back on the drugs. It's only a matter of time before everybody else in camp knows. So other interesting random stuff that happens in this episode, some of which I think deserves a massive eye roll and some of which is kind of interesting. Con Stapleton, what was the point of this scene, guys? The opening of the episode. Oh, my God. He's with some Claudia lookalike playing some sort of bathtub sex game. I can't. I just can't. He's talking to her, her boobies. And then Sai comes in and he basically says he is uh, incapacitated for any sort of work because he's having a spasm of sex interest. Yeah. <laughs> Way too much Con and Leon yet again in this episode. Like this literally had nothing to do with anything. I think that it was just a saucy teaser. It was slightly to, to say again what we have said. I believe Sita's words were, what's what's Sai going to do, unleash the dope heads? I mean, it's just to show that he has no one to send in his stead to deal with Hurst the way that Al is sending Silas. You know, like that I think is an even more thought out technical interpretation than I <laughs> they may even have been going for. Yeah. But that's what, I mean, that's basically what Sai says. He's like, so uh, I'll refrain from sending you on any errands then. And then, like, I rolls his way out the door. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> it's just showing, like, what a diminished present Sai is. And then building towards him, you know. Everyone is still sort of circling around how they're going to deal with the unleashed, less controlled Hurst. And I think that this is part of Sai's thing is that he just has like no one to help him out in this situation. Yeah. And then other, other stuff that happens that has very little effect on the contents of this episode is that the actors arrive more actors, another stagecoach, including um, a sort of like grizzled actor who seems to be invalid and bedridden and languish who we met recently, continues his plans to renovate the Bordello, the chamois. I thought the, uh, just as a general aesthetic note, I thought that the dialogue this episode was extra Shakespearean. Did anyone feel that way? Yes. I mean, when we got to a spasm of sex interest in the teaser, I was like, oh yeah, it's Milch. It's Milch. But especially in the part where it's Doherty, Silas, and Al, and Johnny. Uh, talking about what it means to be dishonored. I was like, this is like shades of like that first uh, Romeo and Juliet conversation between like Mercutio and then all the brothers talking about like who bit whose thumb at whom. I was yes. like, this is like almost <laughs> that same totally. rapport. Milch was yes. ripping from Shakespeare yet again. <laughs> what a plagiarist. My God. <laughs> Do we have nominations for feminist moments be they most feminist or least feminist i don't want to say like that it's unfeminist for someone with a drug addiction to relapse like that's not what i mean but i do think alma's overall like character arc this backsliding frustrates me from that perspective yeah because i do think she's like she's gone through a lot and I understand that after going through this like miscarriage and the sham marriage and all of this, that she would totally be under the level of stress where she might do something like that. But we don't get to go on that with her. We don't get to see that internal thing happen. 
it's just all of a sudden one episode she's eyeing Leon and then she's back on the drugs. Yeah. yeah. So it's more the approach to the storyline than the fact that it's actually happening that bothers me. I agree. And I don't necessarily think it's a sexism thing because I, I was thinking like when other characters have successes, for example, I mean, Alma in this one is operating her bank with, uh, I guess, some facility. We see transactions taking place and she has the fancy clothes and the nameplate and she's getting interviewed by the paper. So she's like riding on top of the world professionally. And that's a very empowered position. And yet it's undercut with this slide back into addiction. And I was trying to think, have we done anything similar with like the male characters where they're reaching some sort of like apex of power and then they're undercut. Mm. I guess nobody's ever in very much power in, in Deadwood. I guess Bullock and his, and the wife showing up might have been that. I think Hearst might feel that way to a certain extent because he does have all the power, right? At any moment, he can call in all of the people that he has access to in San Francisco or whatever. And then when, when he lost Captain Turner, that might have been him feeling like his <laughs> power is being taken away. That's the only corollary I can yeah. think of. And then getting dragged by the ear is definitely emasculating. I, I feel like that's just to rile him more. Like, I don't actually feel that he's legitimately lost power. Right. No. I agree. And this is this is a poor move on Seth's part because I feel like actually Hearst was in a sort of weakened position. He had lost his man. He was I mean for him to just wander into the gym and start drinking is a little bit weak compared to other moves that he's made so far, right? Yeah. Like he almost seems lonely and sad, which is like did I even know he was capable of those emotions? And then Seth being a fucking idiot and being pissed off about what happened with Hostetler and wanting to take out his rage on Hearst at that moment rather than wait any longer. I mean, uh, Hearst is only going to be reanimated by this. Like the rage is what can fuel him. Seth is doing something unwise. You, you say? <laughs> fucking idiot. Yeah. Brandy, I thought of you because when Alma was in her little stupor at the bank, she and Seth were making like sexy eyes at each other. <laughs> well, that's not how I want it to happen. I mean, <laughs> both of them are not at their best in this episode, okay? Which is probably when they would end up going back and falling into bed together, but I don't think that's going to happen. There are such hot messes, like ready for each other. <laughs> You know? It certainly would have been interesting if, like, Ellsworth had left and Alma had shown up at, at, I don't know where Bullock is, maybe at Charlie Utter's, because she can't go to the house, right? And had, like, seduced him, and they'd they'd gone off somewhere together. If cell phones existed, she would have been booty calling him uh, that totally. moment. A hundred percent. That moment. Yeah, a karaoke well, booty call just doesn't have the same... I think they live in the same neighborhood, right? So she could have smoke signaled in her fireplace. Oh, my God. That would be incredible. But, yeah, the, like, you up, miss you text at that moment. Totally like, I'm just thinking things through a tiny bit, but isn't Blazanov not allowed to disclose the contents of any of his telegrams? Could you technically yeah. not send the telegram but be like, I would like to send a telegram across the thoroughfare? And then he would have to be the booty call delivery system like <laughs> Lazanoff is missing out on some serious money by not making that kind of business happen you know if we ever reboot it this is my pitch 
So I think the most feminist moment, of course, is uh, is my man Ellsworth for not having sex with Alma while she's drugged up. Because as we all know, in frontier rules, like a drugged up woman is basically a yes. So that's as feminist as you're going to get in this episode. We're back to that low bar. Wow. (laughs) Super low bar. Well, not much happened with the other female characters, to be honest. I mean, there were feminist things like Trixie is still in control of her sexual destiny when it comes to boinking or not boinking Saul, right? Mm -hmm. My nomination was that Alma was getting interviewed as the owner of the bank, and that was kind of cool. I just wish ladies were able to be in positions of power, like more, more technical positions of power in this universe. Or any universe. <laughs> Literally, even the current one. It would be great. <laughs> so, my goodness, what a ride. Honestly, Dan and the captain were the stars of this episode. It was pretty awesome as a fight sequence, but we're backsliding on some of the ladies, and I would like to see Jane again at some point. Mm-hmm. Maybe next week. We'll see. We'll be back with another episode of Ladywood. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Wee Brandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you for listening. 